And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strahan, Gary K. Wolf, and very special guest, World Fantasy Award-winning writer Rachel Swirsky on the Coot Street Podcast! Thank you for that wonderful, memorable, and completely original introduction, Jonathan. And welcome, Rachel, if you still want to talk to us. Uh, hello. Um, and, and I don't mean to be pedantic. I actually won the Nebula Award. I have not won the World Fantasy Award. Oh, I don't know why but I'm... that story, okay, wait a minute, am I wrong? The the, the lady who plucked green, oh, the lady who plucked is what I think. That was nominated yeah, it's for World long Fantasy. title, yeah. It was, was nominated um, for World Fantasy for the Locus Award for, uh, you won the Nebula, for the Hugo, and right? The Hugo, yeah. Yeah, so you I was nominated like for the Hugo, I won the Nebula, yeah. Yep. Oops. That's pretty impressive. I was excited. Interesting. <laughs> well, it's pretty, it, it's, okay, one of the things I think is impressive about that story, and I want to talk obviously we want to talk about your new book later this month is that it's a story that could qualify equally for both the hugo award and the nebula award and the world fantasy award and there are not a lot of stories that cover all those bases i was really surprised by how positive the reception was to it um i i worked on it for you know i i'm super slow so i tend to work on stuff over the course of a few years and um i you know, that was one of the stories I was kind of screwing around when I was writing, too. So it was, uh, I guess, maybe it had that sense of fun or something that then appealed to readers as well. I get the sense that people are beginning to enjoy uh, stories that sort of, like, move from one genre to another to another within the same story. And I think a few years ago, readers might have been confused by that. But one of the right. things that struck me about the story is that it's, it starts out looking like a classic fantasy story. You've got the queen and the sorceress and so forth. And then it sort of turns into something halfway between science fiction and fantasy with automatons. And then, and then there's a dystopian sort of uh, handmaid's tale part to it. And it ends up a, a kind of like eschatological science fiction. So you've got, what, five genres in one story. I guess I read a lot of science fiction. <laughs> I don't know if I think about genre the same way, and this may be just partially also because I'm um, have have worked a lot in literary fiction. Mm. Is you know um, I'm really unconcerned with genre boundaries, and um, and I think that that maybe as a whole the genre is moving in that direction. I feel like I get a lot less pushback um, about my work than I did when I was first starting out with on that regard, where people are trying to figure out how to classify it. Well, I guess I mean you started writing what back in well publishing in 2006. Uh, yeah. Is that is that the major change that you found over the seven years that you've been publishing regularly? Um, it's hard to sort out like what are the changes that are happening to the industry as a whole versus like what are the changes that are happening to me personally because my career has um, moved very quickly, which I feel you know extremely fortunate about. So that you know, um, I. I feel like um, people, I, I feel like there's an interaction between me and readers now where like at first maybe my work was a little bit obscure and now it doesn't feel that way. Like it feels like either I've pulled more toward um, what people are used to reading or um, maybe that's a process of moving both ways by my having had that work out there, it becomes part of the conversation. Um, and, and I think other writers are doing the same thing, um, you know, having work that's it's a little bit more experimental, a little bit more literary, 
Um, mm. But yeah, I don't, I don't get the same kind of confused reaction that I did at first, I think. Do you find that connects at all with the kind of places that, you, that you're getting published now and where, how, well, not where, how they're regarded? Because it seems to me that you get published a lot more or have been in online venues than print venues. And I wonder if there's a different kind of an attitude to work in, the, in those two different kind of venues. Well, um, yes, I, I think so. Um, I, I don't send to FNSF anymore, and um, I'm not really an analog writer, although I would love to someday write an analog-y story. But I think that, um, yeah, I mean, the, the readerships for those magazines maybe have more of a, an expectation of consistency and consistency with what they've seen before. I mean, I think Gordon's come out and said that specifically, mm -hmm. that one of the advantages he sees of FNSF versus some of the online stuff is that it's it's predictable content, um, which is maybe not what I'm producing. So. Now, I, I guess if we go, go way back to try and sort of understand the writer you are, it comes out of the reader you were and have become. What was your kind of reading background? Were you a active science fiction reader, a fantasy reader, some you know, a literary reader, a, a blend of something else? Um, well, my parents are, are avid readers themselves, and my mom is actually a, a was a high school librarian. She just retired a couple of years ago, but. Um, and they met um, partially over science fiction. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so they had a big bookshelf behind their bedroom door that was full of like a couple shelves of Asimov's magazines and lots of, um, lots of books under that. And so I did read an awful lot of science fiction and fantasy. I mean, I think that was always sort of the center of my reading universe. But I also read a lot of literary stuff. But yeah, I don't think I ever was like, I only want to read... Um, Anne McCaffrey, or I only want to read, you know, on the other side, like um, Octavia Butler. It was um, definitely an interest in all the genres. And there was a lot of stuff when I was growing up that blended it, like, um, mm. well, Anne McCaffrey is that those that series of science fiction, technically. Mm -hmm. She was but, very uh, insistent about that. She she was uh, just as a footnote, which is the kind of thing yeah. that cranky old She was guest of honor at. World Fantasy many years ago, and her guest of honor speech basically said, I shouldn't be guest of honor here because I'm a science fiction writer. And all those dragons are scientifically plausible. They worked, and they actually were. She had worked the whole thing out uh, in terms of planetary science and geology and, uh, and, and eventually biology. So she always, even though she was willing to certainly you know, enjoy the adulation of fantasy readers, she always thought of herself as a science fiction writer. I, but in... in in, in many of the books, that's not at all apparent that there's any of the science background going on. So you have this, um, right, this blending of genres. And Marion Zimmer Bradley was right. doing the same thing in Darkover, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, right. So I guess I oh. feel like maybe Lady Red was drawing from that kind of idea, that tradition of this is a, a science fictional universe, maybe sort of, or a fantasy universe. You know, it's, it's a fantasy universe that has a... Uh, that also has space and planets and stuff. I wouldn't have but, immediately have thought it, but do you see a link between your work and Bradley's and McCaffrey's at all? I don't think I'm coming from the same tradition, but I definitely read a lot of uh, Anne McCaffrey's as a kid. Um, I, I have to admit that um, James Nichols says the suck fairy comes and visits mm -hmm. your favorite writers while you're, <laughs> yeah, the suck fairy kind of 
visited Anne McCaffrey for me, but, um, and mm. I, I was never a huge fan of Marion Zimmer Bradley's writing, but I read her magazine. Okay. Oh yeah. I'd almost forgotten about that. Did you read, did you read a lot of mainstream short fiction? Did you read people like Lori Moore or Amy Hempel or, uh, the, or, or even going back to the fifties? Because you mentioned mainstream literature and there's, there's some, there's some, some stories of yours. I mean, something like Heartstrung is one that comes to mind that could easily have been a New Yorker kind of story because it's so intensely metaphorical that it doesn't read like a fantasy story. It reads like a literary story being a fantasy story. Um, I didn't as a kid. Like as a kid, I read when I was reading short fiction, um, Marion Zimmer Bradley's fantasy magazine and FNSF mm -hmm. a lot in high school. Um, and then I would read literary novels. Um, but I, okay. I did read um, literary short stories when I was when I was in college. And um, I also um, binge read a lot of plays where genre is much less a thing. Right. Um, and so you have absurdism and you have, you know, maybe there's a rhinoceros or, <laughs> you know, it's not considered as distinct. Um, so I'm sure that was informing it too. One of the things that struck me about, that we should be mentioning uh, your book, How the World Became Quiet, Myths of the Past, Present, and Future, which is out later this month, I believe. And yeah. um, it's it, it really moves a lot, of, uh, moves around genres a lot. But in the end, you've got these little eschatological fables, some of which sound like you must have been reading people like, I don't know, Cordwainer Smith or Olaf Stapledon. They have these far, really far future things. There's one story that begins... I think with a line, in the first million years of its existence, you just don't write that sort of thing in a five-page short story unless you plan to, you know, plan to echo some kind of epic, old-fashioned science fiction, um, visionary fiction. Um, and those are actually names that I'm not, that I don't have background with. Um, maybe more Stanislaw okay. Lem. Um, Lem. Yeah, I mean, I think there are other writers maybe who are approximating that stuff. A couple of those stories started out as poems, actually. Um, so maybe they were even a little bit sillier in terms of taking a, a huge time span and putting it into tiny. Is that space. a more common way for your or a common way for your stories to start? Not anymore. It happened a lot when I was in college because I was taking poetry classes, and um, I was wondering. Yeah, yeah. It's, they sound a little bit like poems at times, too. I'm not an okay poet, sort of, but, um, yeah, periodically I would look at this and I'd be like, I can't make this work as a poem. Let's just try making it longer. <laughs> hmm. I have to ask, I mean, you've been, you've been writing you know, short fiction for seven years now, and I know that you had a short collection come out from Aqueduct Press a couple of years ago, I believe it was, if I recall correctly. Um, how does it feel to have your first major book come out? It's so shiny, and it has a cover by Sean Tan. How did that come to happen? I mean, I'm I a, a friend of Sean's. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's a Sean Tan cover, yeah. Well, Subterranean just, they doesn't do that. They, they don't show you the covers on their arcs. So <laughs> that's great. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm so excited about that. Um, like, ridiculously excited about that. I, I have to say, um, my taste in art is not science fiction and fantasy taste in art, mm. generally. Um, I, I uh, love Shantan, and I love sort of more surrealist stuff, but um, the traditional, like, 
very realist painting of a dragon and a knight kind of stuff sure. is not not my yeah. speed. And um, it's was one of the reasons I'm really excited to be publishing the subterranean is I think their covers by and large are stunning. Mm -hmm. well, and um, yeah, they're willing to reach into weird art, um, <laughs> which I love. Partially because they don't have the same commercial considerations that the big publishers do, and I know they can't reach into the weird art the same way. But. How, how did you come to be doing How the World Became Quiet with uh, with Bill and Subterranean? Well, um, actually, my first short story publication was in Subterranean magazine, mm -hmm. or I don't know if it was the first thing that was published. It was the first thing I sold. Um, mm. Scalzi guest edited an issue on science fiction cliches, and... Um, he had an open slush pile, yep. which Bill never had. And because Scalzi published me for the first time, along with um, three other first-time authors, one of whom was Anne Leckie, whose uh, first space opera is coming out yep. like, hmm. this month as well, um, I was then able to send to Bill because he was familiar with my work. And so Bill has been very generous and helpful um, in my career. And so he sent me a note um, a few years ago and said, you know, when I had enough stories, he would be interested in looking at a collection. And is there anything that binds the collection? I mean, I've, I've read any number of elements of the collection, but I haven't sat down as Gary has to review it, to read the book through in a piece. Is there anything that binds it together in your mind, other than being just recent stories? Well, what I really wanted to do was look at it um, in terms of... Um, I mean, it's called Myths to the Past, Present, and Future, and I divided it into sections called Past, Present, and Future. Um, and actually, the criteria for what I included in the book was um, a kind of uh, not very artistic. I, 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 because I got the authors from Aqueduct and Subterranean at the same time, I needed to figure out which stories would go in, in which place. And um, one of the ways I did that, uh, because Subterranean, you know, was going to do a larger print run and um, is less of a specialized feminist market, stuff like that, um, was I took the stories that had been reprinted in Year's Best anthologies or that mm -hmm. had been printed in um, uh, professional markets, um, which is all I do now, but wasn't what I was doing when I started out. Um, and uh, those are the ones I put into Subterranean. But I knew I had sort of a bunch of stories about a, the end of the world, like in increasingly weird, um, surreal ways, the ones that you were talking about. Um, the ones, the section called The End. Right. And um, so I knew I had kind of wanted to pile, like the world ends this way, this way, this way, this way, in increasingly crazy fashions at the end of the book, um, which informed how I shaped the collection as a whole. It struck, it struck me also that the uh, collection is, uh, I, I said this in the review actually, the, there is a kind of negotiation between the idea of the past and the future. And in a sense, uh, the lady, well, let's get the title out completely once. The Lady Who Plucked Red Flowers Beneath the Queen's Window, which is the lead story in the collection, kind of in, yeah. in, a, in a sense encapsulates what the rest of the collection does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, because it moves from sort of the beginning through the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I need to get some more creation myths in there, clearly. <laughs> in my genre. Well, yeah. You need to... 
let me ask you, wh- why do you write short stories exclusively or, or, well, and poetry? Uh, have you tried your hand at novels, or is there something particularly about short fiction that draws you back to it again and again? I actually, I do have a draft of a novel, which my agent is being super patient about me not having given to him. Um, I uh, am intensely controlling about the language um, in a sort of pathological way. Um, <laughs> and and I don't know, like, how, like, how long, I don't know how much benefit, like, at some point there's got to be diminishing returns. But I actually sit and retype anything I write over and over again until I um, get the sentences to where I want them to be, because that forces me to reinterrogate, you know, sort of the grammar and the organization of the clauses and whether I have all the words exactly the way I want them. Um, and that's an incredibly time consuming process. So the longer the work is, the more prohibitive it com- becomes to retype it, um, which I'll do somewhere between, you know, four or 20 times. Wow. Um, I'm, I'm going toward the lower end now. <laughs> oh. so, um, so you actually you actually retype whole sentences and paragraphs from scratch rather than simply making corrections and tweaks and that sort of thing in your first draft. I retype the whole thing. Yeah. Wow. So you would have typed you know the lady beneath the window twenty or you know, fifty anywhere from five to twenty times. Yes, I think that was nine or ten. How's um, how's how's carpal tunnel treating you? <laughs> You know, I'm actually, I don't have a problem and I don't know really? why. I'm sure I will. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel like that gives you some kind of greater physical connection to the story or something? Um, it might. I feel like it. Um, it's almost related to, you know, Andy Duncan talks about the number of times he reads the story out loud uh-huh. to get the voice right. And I think I think it's, it's sort of like that. Um, and it's partially because when I go in and just make tweaks to sentences, and I'm trying to teach myself to do that because this is not a manageable work process <laughs> for long fiction. Um, uh-huh. You know, it, it affects the rhythm, and then it can affect the rhythm two or three paragraphs down. So if I want to make sure I have control over that, then I have to reinterrogate the whole passage. Fair enough. Do you find it that, like musical? It sounds like right. music composition almost, uh, where, where every change you make is going to resonate through the rest of that chapter. And um, yeah, that's too much work. You're gonna, you're going to kill yourself with this. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's funny. I'm I'm super slow for genre writer, um, but I have to say I'm still faster than the lit writers I went to my MFA program with. <laughs> oh. Yes, yeah, do you want to see? You want to talk about MFA writers at all, or the MFA genre as I think of it? Sure. Like I, um, from a writer's perspective, I think that there's a whole lot of really cool stuff going on. Um, you know, with uh, literary writing and and that approach. Um, just as I think there's a lot of really cool stuff going on in genre writing, and I find it frustrating um, from a craft of writing perspective when I realize how much, you know, literary writers in my MFA program would sometimes respond to me turning in a, a story that I had written for a genre magazine um, with like, oh my God, this is so much fun to read, right? Because nobody's ever yeah. talking about how do you get the reader involved, right? Um, mm. What is this from the perspective of somebody picking up the story? Um, 
but on the other hand, in genre, um, there can be such an emphasis in writing workshops on get it fast, get it fast, get it fast, get it fast. That right. like um, one of the important things I learned in my MFA was from Marilyn Robinson, um, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning oh, author. Oh, was amazing. Very long books. And she was like, why do you keep writing this stuff? Like, you know, why is this scene only four sentences long? And I was like, because you have to keep the word count down. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is that sales thing. And she was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and uh, so I feel like I'd love the... I'd love there to be more communication and less hostility. And I actually, I think those boundaries are super breaking down. Um, I think they exist a lot more in people's heads right now than they do. Not necessarily on the publishing side, that can be trickier. But um, like a lot of the lit writers I was working with are really excited about the idea of working with genre writers and genre concepts. Um, My personal theory is it's Star Wars. (laughs) Yeah, well, I I think people have, yeah, that's true. I think that. Uh, some people who are running my writing programs, not just, for example, Jim Kelly at, uh, at, sure. at Stony Stone Coast, but uh, people like Brian Evanson at Brown are just they, they they really kind of want to be in both worlds. They don't see why there's a dis- distinction. And the more that happens in MFA programs, the healthier it is for all of us, I think, because it really wouldn't hurt for some of the MFA. And I've got friends who uh, who teach in MFA programs and who will happily spend, you know, 10 years putting together uh, a collection of seven short stories, uh, and I think they could well they could do well to learn from the discipline of having to sell to venues and markets that actually pay you money. Right. Although I mean, certainly if you want to make the most money, <laughs> you're trying to sell to the to the glossies, but that's not as sustainable. No, you, there's a New Yorker and Playboy and what else? The Atlantic Monthly pays super okay. well. All right. Esquire. Um, then, you're, then, then you're looking at Prairie Schooner and the Iowa Review after that. <laughs> yeah, eventually. But uh, and, uh, and, and also the simple fact is that you know four or five short story slots a month does not a career for anybody make, I guess. Pretty much, and I think that's a that's a big difference. It's, I mean, I think that's one reason why I ended up publishing, and because I was initially sort of sending stuff out in lit and genre. You know, and and I was writing a lot more um, literary short stories than I do now. I don't write very many now. Uh-huh. Um, and there's just that, you know, um, the wall is a lot higher. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's less of a sense of community and more sense of hierarchy and um, more facelessness. And I, you know. Do you think we have so many markets, yeah. so many venues? Mm-hmm. Such a more conversation here was really welcoming to me. Do you think that literary, uh, well, so well, literary the writers of the literary genre, if you like, for a better way of putting it, sure, and genre writers have different toolkits available to them when it comes to writing stories and building stories. Totally, and I think you see that reflected in the way that the workshops are taught. So, like. Um, I was in a, one of the workshop classes I was in in Iowa was taught by Jonathan Ames, mm-hmm. who has an interest in um, genre work. I think he was writing mysteries, farces, things like that. Yeah, he wasn't working in science fiction. But, um, but I was there and we had this dialogue about genre and a bunch of the literary writers were excited. So they decided they were going to write a um, genre story. 
And there is just like there's endemic stuff that happens <laughs> when a literary writer who writes beautiful literary stories comes over and writes their first genre story. <laughs> um, they don't know how to handle exposition because exposition's fucking hard. Right. Um, and um, they don't know how to handle pacing. And there's there's a lot of different problems. So they're drawing on a different tool set. Um, and then on the other hand, sometimes when I see genre writers try to write literary work, I find it a little bit embarrassing because um, I think maybe they feel like the more boring I am, the more this will be a literary story. <laughs> or, um, yeah. The sense of character actually is a really big one. Character and language, they, they talk about those things, I think, um, a lot more in literary circles. And so um, you have to have a lot of control of those if you're going to actually write a, a really well done literary story. Do you ever feel like we misunderstand genre fiction when we attempt to apply mainstream metrics to assessing its quality? Um, I guess from a personal perspective, um, which may not be exactly addressing this question, I have trouble um, letting go and uh, enjoying things without worrying too much about their quality. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that when I am able to do that, what I'm actually bringing to the table is a different set of criteria, right? Like, am I enjoying this? You know, turning off the part of my brain that's looking at the language and going, oh, what are you doing? Um, and um, so, yes, I mean, I think, I think that some genre work, um, its aims are just different and you wanna come to it with what its aims are. Yeah. I mean, I think a great example, and the one I have in mind, I guess, is in a book like, say, 2312 by Stan Robinson, which has great chunks of exposition in it. In a mainstream novel, great chunks of exposition almost always are bad writing. From, from what I can tell of Stan Robinson's perspective, it's part of the form of science fiction. You know? See, I almost feel like that's the opposite. Like, I feel like the literary readers would be much more patient with that. It's um, the science fiction workshops where I hear, you know, don't have info dumps. Um, okay. Yeah, uh, John, I think that uh, Stan argues for the info dump as a, as a kind of art form in itself. And I, and I think it's also true that science fiction didn't invent that. I mean, if you want to plow your way through War and Peace again, there's a 200-page lecture on the philosophy of history in the middle of that, uh -huh. and more than one. So, yeah. yeah, there are info dumps all over mainstream fiction. I guess what what encourages me is to, to think that um, I mean I, I I got my doctorate in literary fiction as as everybody else had to at that time, and I think do I see a science fiction version of Catherine Mansfield's The Garden Party or James Joyce's The Dead, and probably not. But why should I? The question is, can you can you capture that sensibility in a story which also involves fantastic elements? And I don't see any structural reason why you can't. Um, okay, let me, let, me, let me give an example. This is going to be unfair to people who like Isaac Asimov. But let's talk about your second, what I think is probably your second most famous story, Rachel, which is Eros, uh, uh, Eros Philia so, Agape. Agape. Yes. And that's really a robot, robot finding its own way story. Yeah. Which is a very familiar science fiction idea. Uh, there is really a lot more of mainstream characterological virtue, not only the robot, but the family that he abandons in that story, 
than there is really in all of Asimov's robot stories combined, which is not to criticize Asimov because he was writing puzzle stories. He was writing logic puzzles. But nevertheless, that's a good example of a story that seems to me to use a science fiction trope and approach it through mainstream mechanisms. Which I think is what interests me. Um, I uh, have limited patience, <coughs> excuse me, um, for some of the puzzle stories. Um, mm. I'm, I'm trying to learn my way back into enjoying some of that stuff through young adult novels, actually. Um, or I feel like I have less cynicism to bring into um, into the work. Um, but yeah, um, I think that um, in particular that has that's my project, and also my project with literary fiction as well um, is sort of uh, questioning tropes that come up and trying to look at them in a different light. Um, and there are certainly a lot of literary mainstream tropes as well. Well, that's true. Same thing, but not with robots. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking as a, let me just jump around. Speaking as, as a younger woman, younger than us, young, uh, who has come into the field, in, you know, since the mid two thousands. How do you feel the science fiction field these days is about welcoming anybody into the field, and how is it specifically in your experience for a woman entering the field, because there's always a lot of concern about exactly this, just how inclusive our field is and how, how approachable it is, I guess. Um, I would be lying if I didn't say I thought there were still issues. Um, I think that uh, it's better now than it was when I entered the field. Um, although that could be because I, I also know, excuse me, where to go. Um, but I feel like um, when I, <clears throat> one of one of the big disappointments for me when I first came in was realizing that I, I probably wasn't going to be an FNSF author because I had read a lot of that when I was in high school, mm-hmm. um, and FNSF. Uh, when I just I was like, okay, I think that we are not <laughs> meant for each other. Mm-hmm. Um, he published some editorials by Dave Truesdale that were really offensive to me, and. Um, that's such a blast of like, and I like, I like Gordon. Um, so, but that was such a blast of like, you are not welcome here. Um, that, uh, um, that, you know, there were some times I felt like I didn't know if I had any footing at all anywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's a lot of places like there was strange horizons when I was coming up, but there's Clark's world and there's, um, places that are much more um, okay with uh, with the playing with genre tropes. And I think that that also makes them more okay with playing with diversity. Well, I, can I ask, is, and I generally don't have a preformed answer to this question myself, is some of that a reception to diversity or is it that there are particular publications that have a clear idea of the kind of fiction they want to publish? I mean, you've said earlier in the conversation that FNSF particularly has said they have a very clear view of what they publish. Is that more the kind of exclusionary um, practice that it's not the kind of fiction they publish as opposed to anything else? Or is it just an, an array of barriers you face, all of which can be 
potentially alienating and lead to you not writing for these places? Um, I, uh, if I'm understanding the question correctly, probably a combination. Um, in particular, like um, I, when I was saying that the places that want to cross boundaries, right, and are looking for newer kinds of fiction mm. are essentially going to be more friendly toward authors who are not all from the same kind of background. Mm. Because if you're only publishing the traditional science fiction, right, you want to hit that 13-year-old boy demographic um, uh, with the golden age type stories, um, those stories were written in a certain cultural setting, right? And for a certain audience. And, um, you know, I think it's um, not necessarily at home to the voices of women and minorities as much as it is to, um, to, to white guys. With, of course, there are totally women and minorities who are interested in that stuff and white guys who aren't. Um, but I mean you know, sort of demographically trending. Um, yeah, so I, I if, think, yeah. I was just thinking, that's a good description of what I think of as the analog market, and there's there's no doubt that's a segment of it. I'm still surprised at FNSF, and it strikes me that whatever happened with F, F, FNSF is more literary than demographic, because Gordon certainly did a great deal of good for Mary Rickard's career, uh, sure. and she didn't even know she was writing genre fiction when she started sending stuff to him. Uh, it, it just may be that there's something odd about your fiction that crosses so many lines at once uh, that has so much sensibility of past science fiction in it. Um, but um, I don't know where I'm going with that at all. <laughs> well, I actually, I don't know that Gordon and I couldn't necessarily have come together. I, th that's a diversity issue for me, um, mm. is that the, the magazine, well, when you're talking about other kinds of, not just the writing, right, but other kinds of boundaries that are put in front of yeah. you. right. If one of those boundaries is this is an editorial about, you know, um, pussies winning awards, I think was the one that I was like, oh, I'm done with this oh now. God, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. There's a problem there. Well, I guess there's a difference as well. I mean, because there's a different, oh, sorry, there are different issues because there's, in fiction, there's the Gernsback continuum of 13 year old boy kind of science fiction you're talking about, which is the, the going back to Asimov and the whole Campbell era kind of thing. And that's one strain in the field and then there is other kinds of exclusionary practices and really unfortunate and reprehensible behavior i mean comments like you're talking about from truesdale all of which must occasionally make you feel i'd rather go off and try and write for a literary market than try and push my way into this where i feel like i'm not welcome i mean speaking as someone who sits where i do um at locus editing anthologies, whatever else, I find it very concerning that there is a vibe sent out from our field to anybody that they're not welcome and shouldn't be part of it in some way. Uh, and I find it concerning that it doesn't take a lot of those those kind of exclusionary voices to discourage people from being, you know, attempting to be part of the field. Well, right, and, and how they're promoted. Um... So, like, I mean, I, I feel like I'm being hard on Gordon, and that's just because I really huh. like FNSF, and, yeah. and I like Gordon um, a lot. And so, um, for me, when I when I had when I saw that, and I was like, okay, <laughs> you know, this is I don't feel like there can be space for both this essay and me here. <laughs> I agree. Sure. No, that's that's totally re reasonable, and I and 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 your you know your position with SFWA obviously comes up against that sort of thing, or at least came up against that sort of thing fairly recently. There's a lot of really uh, unconscionable 
um, rhetoric in the science fiction and fantasy field. And the, the, the thing that strikes me as ironic is that uh, there always has been, and only now are people calling attention to it. One of the books that I think people should, I think people want to understand science fiction and fantasy should read, and most people don't because it's an academic book, is Justine Larbalestier's yeah. The Battle of the Sexes in Science Fiction, in which she fairly convincingly demonstrates that women readers and women's sensibilities as readers had been part of the genre since the 1930s, unacknowledged, but nevertheless uh, very visible in the letter columns of amazing stories even back then. And, and that exclusionary principle uh, is something which somehow persisted for decades without, without being addressed. And I think if, if you want to address it by saying, look, this is an offensive essay and I can't publish in the venue of this essay, I think that's entirely reasonable. It probably is overdue, in fact. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I, I actually have nev never spoken about this publicly before. But, you know, I mean, I think that there are. Uh, which is why part of why I'm hedging, and and I do want to you know say because I assume that Gordon will eventually hear about this, you know that I, I do like him and I do like the magazine, but I, oh. there are there are messages that are being sent, and when when you have such an important position in the field, and you promote that kind of voice, um, to me the message was, you know, <laughs> you're not welcome not, here. Not me, yeah, and. Um, uh, I, I know that was a message much more strongly received by a lot of other women at the time. And there are totally women who, who didn't have a problem with it, you know, there always are um, a range of opinions. Um, I think I, I read Justine's book when I was in college and, um, yeah. you know, it sort of relates to one of the things I've been having as an issue at conventions and stuff, which is... Um, Isaac Asimov, like, um, s talking to people who were harassed by Isaac Asimov and seeing how, like, viscerally sad it makes them. Mm. The fact that this is unarticulated is very upsetting to me. So, like, I can't process him as a hero of the genre anymore, personally. And, and I feel like I'd like to be able to again. Like, um, and I feel like I could if it was just part of the story of Asimov, the way that, you know, um, some like Wagner is anti-Semitic, right? And that's something we all know. Right. And that's part of Wagner. Well, Asimov really hurt a lot of young women fans in particular, but a lot of, I'm sure not just young women, but in particular, young women are the ones I'm thinking about. People who had no social power couldn't tell him to stop. Um, and, um, so to just sort of pretend that he's this genial, great figure is upsetting to me. And, um, I think I that's true. I, I, just within the last week, I saw something on a discussion board about, and it was some aging fan who was being nostalgic for the days when Isaac Asimov could stare down a woman's cleavage from across the room. And as far as I could tell, this fan was, was, was remembering that with absolute fondness and nostalgia and until the responses of course he got were like what <laughs> like yeah what, th this is this is not being ironic but apparently asimov was like that oh. and, and no doubt any number of others were um unfortunately do you feel your own welcome in the genre has changed over time i mean have things like winning the nebula award made things easier for you at all oh totally i talk about editorial um 
getting to editor's attention, it's like you're you're getting through a semi-permeable membrane of a cell. <laughs> so, um, you know, when you're starting out in slush and you don't, nobody knows you, and then you have to hit harder to get through the membrane. Um, but, and so it's easier now. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, also as, as a woman, like, I know that there were times when I was like, oh my God, is there anybody who's who's super supportive of, of you know, like diversity? And, and I don't know, I think there are a lot of people who have explicitly said so. So, you know, there's Clark's World and, and all of those places where it's not just um, an absence of statement on it. Like, it's not just a neutral, but like an actual positive attempt mm. to welcome people yeah. in. So, so tell tell us now that you are having your first major collection come out. You know, you've said that you've got a draft of a novel in front of you. What is it that you're hoping to get to, to sort of move towards over the next year or two? Are we going to see you sort of push more towards novel writing, or will it be a consistent output of short stories, and that'll be mainly what you're going to do? Do you feel? Um, well, I'd like to keep up my output of short stories, which has actually gone down in the last few years because I've been writing the novel. Um, so I'm, I'm working on some stuff. I, um, I don't have a huge amount of control sometimes. I feel really bad and like, um, I feel like, like the, uh, fainting artist, you know, <laughs> fainting suffering artist. Yeah. Like, I always have control over my subject matter, but, um, I've been finding myself wanting to write like more sort of aggressive or ridiculous pieces rather than, you know, serious character explorations. Um, what I expect I will do is probably start publishing novels in um, young adult um, fiction, which I think is this incredibly vital um, place um, for readers to be exchanging ideas and um, I, with such enthusiasm and uh and publishing short stories and genre and and hopefully keep reading and supporting other genre writers in short fic mm -hmm. one of the things that's uh, struck me in in how the world became quiet is that there are a couple of stories in that that seem to be very angry and very um i don't want to use the word righteous but they're unpleasantly graphic stories i'm thinking of um thinking of the one called with singleness of heart which is really yeah. a story about weaponized rape. Yeah. And that's and and that's a fairly unflinching story. Now, do you think you could get away with that in young adult fiction? Oh, hell no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think so. But I mean, that's actually I mean, a lot of my stories with that aesthetic have been published more in literary circles too. Um, yeah. Uh, I get bored really easily, which is also part of the genre, <laughs> hopping around. And so, um, you know, if I'm writing too many things with, like, slow character exploration, then I have to go off and write about rat pirates because I'm bored. Right. <laughs> so, so is that what your first novel, well, the novel you're working on is, is it Young Adult? Yeah, it's, uh, it's werewolves. And um, it's werewolves and, and the politics of social organization. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fine. All right. Well, one of the things I've, I've we were talking to Paolo Bacigalupi, who's who decided to go to young adult uh, partly because he wanted he has a very uh, focused message which he wants to get to people who he think will make a difference, and those are younger readers. Is that part of what you're thinking? That younger readers maybe are just more open-minded. You know, totally not. <laughs> I think it's okay. A good. Legitimate um, reason. Um, I think um, I've fallen in love with it because there's 
um, there's so much enthusiasm from the readers on the one hand, and also um, I love the space for it not to be so cynical. Um, there's still space for it to be new or fresh to the readers, to be um, very emotionally raw. Um, mm. So I've enjoyed reading it a great deal. Well, one of the things about young adult fiction, we've talked about it on the podcast before, is that, and I think this is an advantage in our field, is that by and large, if you or Paolo or um, any number of people, uh, Holly Black, write young adult fiction, the adult readers will follow into that field without a hesitation. There's no sense of uh, discrimination. And by the same token, from the other hand, young adult readers will perfectly cheerfully read science fiction and fantasy without realizing that it's something lesser than what they might be reading. Yeah. I mean, there's many fewer genre distinctions, which is probably exactly. something else that appeals to me, right? Um, is that you can pick up something with, you know, that's about a, a serious high school, you know, trauma story, or you can pick up something that's a fairies and um, it's just a sort of joy of reading. And, and um, I love that. <laughs> Well, I mean, it has to be tempting to write for readers who don't, who have not yet learned what they're not supposed to like. There's a sense of like um, the part of me that enjoyed Star Trek: The Next Generation really, really super unironically. You know, <laughs> I will write this fan fiction. Like I was reading a Lainey Taylor's Daughters of Blood and mm -hmm. thing, um, and. Uh, there are these flying like angel people and there are moments in the book where I was like, Oh my God, this is so it, mostly around. There was like a big romance in the center. And I was like, I don't like this romance at all. Why is this here? It's stupid. Um, but then I was like, okay, just be 16 again. And there's a guy there with wings. Hell yes. Right. Yeah, it's a guy with wings. What can you do? Right. And um, so yes, it's not just what you've learned not to like, but, I don't know. Yeah, I guess it is what you've learned not to like. There's no, there's not the same sense of ennui. <laughs> well, and, and it's also recognizing a good story when you see one. And it's something that, uh, this is a hobby horse of mine, you have to be trained to unrecognize a good story because kids will follow a good story, whether it's got dragons or demons or angels or guys with wings in it, uh, and, and not bother to think about, well, is this is this realistic? This is... Uh, it's, just, it's only later that we sort of beat that out of them. So I, I can understand the appeal of young adult fiction, absolutely. And there are totally ways... My cats are, are now apparently unhappy that I'm doing podcast. Um, <laughs> so I will apologize for the annoying. Um, I, I have no idea what I was going to say. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> but, the, uh, my, my, but the point I was making is that uh, the... the Writing young adult fiction, and Paolo is a good example of this, as far as I know, a huge chunk of the sales of his young adult fiction were for adult readers who wanted a new Paolo Bacigalupi novel. There have been young adult, always been young adult writers like um, Daniel Pinkwater, half of whose audience has always been adults. So you don't lose your adult readers by going to young adult. You don't. And, um, and the young adult readers will follow you back sometimes to the... To the adult stuff as well. Um, right. I'll also say that from a career perspective, there's a certain evil genius about writing middle grade YA and adult books. 
because once you've you've captured the the, the audience, you keep them for life. Um, there's a lot of little. I mean, the, the, on a super practical level, the advances are higher. <laughs> yeah. And the audiences are bigger. That actually is something that affects me. Yes. Not so much that um, you're reaching an audience whose perspectives you can shape, but just, I mean, because I am a political writer, you can reach a lot more people. Um, well, let's that's it. I mean, one, one of the key things about writing a Shirley is to be read. For me, anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, I, mean, I, I, I have encountered people who genuinely are unconcerned about this, which I've always found slightly perplexing, at least. Uh, I would have thought that the goal of writing a story is that somebody somewhere will read it, and I guess the more people who read it, the better. I mean, that was the unequivocal me you know, message from Paolo last week when we yeah. spoke to him, and one I've picked up again and again. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm never quite sure as to why people would not care about that. I mean, I, would, I don't think you have to compromise or sell out what you're doing or anything else to achieve it, but surely being widely read is is a good thing. I agree. I mean, there are people who tell me that they would, you know, write the same amount if they just wrote it in their journal and nobody saw it. And I, you know, I mean, it's just a very foreign mindset to me because I'm writing to communicate. Yeah. Um, yeah we may be getting back to the MFA problem here, where the idea is <laughs> yeah. if you're read by the, you write enough in order to keep your job and you get a university <laughs> salary, and therefore, however, if, if 15 or 20 or uh, 500 people read your story, that's that's enough to keep going with. Uh, that's a little bit cynical. On the other hand, there are the Emily Dickinsons of the world who don't expect to get read uh, and continue doing what they do anyway. Yeah, I'm totally not Emily Dickinson. I mean, um, <laughs> it also may come from the fact that my first um, sort of artistic expression was um, acting and singing. I was doing musical theater. Um, ah. You don't have an audience, like, what's the point? Um, and... Uh, you know, at some point in college, it was like, yeah, you can probably go ahead and do this professionally, but it's going to be irritating. And, you know, you may not achieve what you want to. So then I, I, I sort of, I was like, all right, then let's find a different way to, to do this. And if I wasn't writing, like if I wasn't a successful writer, I'd probably be off doing something else that I could communicate and, um, you know, uh, hopefully reach people through. And um, so I guess that's another place where I sometimes don't understand other writers, you know, where if people aren't accomplishing their career goals, they're, you know, they're like, uh, I'm writing and I don't seem to be getting better or and no one seems to be picking it up. And I've been doing this for 10 years. And I'm like, well, you could try something else. But um, that's mm -hmm. obviously not the way everybody's brain works. But that's an interesting question. When you mention uh, having been an actor, having been involved in in theater and that sort of thing, did you did you begin to sense that you were frustrated at having to work with someone else's words rather than your own? Um, no, although I think if I'd gone too much further, I would have. Um, one of my friends who is still acting um, is really, um, she's a, a, a very beautiful woman, but she's also, um, she's about five foot tall and she's, um, she, you know, she doesn't look like a runway model, so there's a, so she gets cast in, like, Oklahoma or Oliver or things like that, um, where she can look like an all-American girl instead of, you know, um, whatever it is they think they need for the, some kind of more edgy look or whatever it is. The, gr the girl next door look, the Deanna right. Durbin, Shirley Jones, whatever. And, um... 
so that really limits, like, I mean, um, with respect to Oklahoma and Oliver, like, that's not what I would want to do, right? I mean, that's not, you're not really communicating, um, and I know this is her frustration, you're not necessarily communicating the artistic stuff of your soul when you're just singing Oklahoma. <laughs> um, oh. And I think that would have started to drive me nuts, you know, if you can't actually just do Sondheim everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you, uh, over the last year you've become involved with SFWA and you've just been elected vice president. What was it that led you to become actively involved in the, I guess, business of the field in that way? Um, uh, Mary and John asked, uh, which I guess <laughs> <laughs> yeah, reason, okay. but, um, they actually asked me uh, before I ran and I said, I don't have, um, the, you know, um, ability to do that right now. And, uh, you know, I thought about it and I was really frustrated with the fact that I felt like I didn't have the, um, the, the, the capability of doing it. So I made some space in my life so that I would be able to, um, and, I, I love the idea of SIFWA that that we would be organizing and helping, you know, I'm, I'm super pro-union and SIFWA is not a union, but, you know, no. <laughs> hopefully we can organize and help each other out. Um, and, uh, you know, the organizations had so many problems. And in my opinion, people like Mary Robinette and John Scalzi and a lot of other people have done an enormous amount of work to try to pull it into a space where it can be relevant to people who are, um, you know, working a lot right now. Um, and um, so I think that's exciting work to bring forward. Unfortunately, um, Sifwa also reminds me of the tower that falls into the swamp in Monty Python. <laughs> <laughs> and um, there are so many it's really hard to like build the tower back up. We're like, all right, we're going to haul a tower out of the swamp. Oh, wait, we have to deal with this crisis. And then, you know, <laughs> so we have this idea for a mentorship program. It's going to be awesome, but we can't actually finish that until after we have to put out the fire. Um, so that's been frustrating for me. Do you think writers, ha when they enter the field, really have any idea of the business they're entering? I guess it depends on the writer, but by and large, I don't think so. And I feel like some of the ones who think they do come in with really silly ideas. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, I have known a lot of writers who'll make a list before they go to conventions of everyone they plan to meet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, don't do that. Like, just go in and socialize. And they'll be like, well, there are these famous writers, right? Like Jay Lake or Mary right. Robinette, yeah. who are known as great networkers. And it's like, yeah, that's true. <laughs> are you them? Um, some, but also, they just... Yeah, some of this has to depend on your your individual personality because right. I know exactly what you're talking about. I have, I have good friends who go to the conventions, and before they three weeks before they arrive, make sure they have every breakfast, lunch, and dinner booked. And my, and my argument has always been, how do you meet new people that way? How how do you encounter people that you didn't know you were going to like if you've got yourself completely booked up? I, I guess there is a kind of career management mantra that goes on among these people, but I've I've never really wanted to be part of it because that makes that makes a convention which ought to be fun and surprising into something that's completely businesslike and, and and predictable. Right. I mean, I think they're actually slightly different phenomena, uh, but. Um and I'd also also defend it just a little bit on one level. I totally understand someone going into a large convention, which is a strange, alienating environment, and try to regulate it a little bit so that they actually enjoy it and understand what's going on around them. 
Well, personally, mm. I actually do sometimes book up um, because otherwise I don't see the people that I meant sure. to see at the convention. Sure. Um, and I try to leave space for like going to parties and stuff. Um, and actually, I didn't book this convention, this Worldcon, and it was a lot more fun to be able to have space to breathe. But I also didn't go to any parties that weren't private parties. And um, I hated that because Worldcon's too big for me. I like yeah. being able yeah. to meet people and just be like, hey, who are you? And what's what are you enthusiastic about? And um, when everyone's crammed in a party room, like there's not... So I always feel frustrated that I that I don't get to meet the fans. Yeah. But, um, See, for me, I mean, okay. so after you, Gary. I was just I was going to say I think Rachel I think you and I ran into each other all of once maybe at this yeah. Worldcon for like five minutes. Yeah, no, so, super, yeah. super. Weird. I will say that the reason that I like World Fantasy so much and I'm happy to be going to Brighton in uh, a month or so is that it is a more manageable experience. I mean, even if the fan professional. Um, Ratio was flipped. I think I would still find it more attractive just because you can actually meet people you can wander around It's absorbable as an experience where Worldcon tends to be a whole bunch of Conflating things all happening at once and you j I've always feel constantly that I'm just missing out on something just over the horizon Because it's too big to keep track of Yeah, I feel the same way. I like the smaller conventions Wiscon world fantasy the nebulas are nice ICFA, you've been to ICFA yeah. as well, which I need to promote. And there's a sense of intimacy and an and easier conversation. Mm. Um. I, I guess one of the questions I was thinking about when I was asking about SFWA is, do you think young writers pay attention to their contracts enough? <laughs> um, I'm not sure <laughs> any writers pay attention to their contracts enough. Um, I know that's something that slips for me when I'm stressed out, um, especially if it's an editor I trust. I'm just... You know, I mean, Jonathan could probably send me an incredibly exploitative contract. <laughs> you know, this is from Jonathan. <laughs> but, but then the problem with that, right, and, and, and I mean, I, I've been in that, because even though I'm not a writer, I'm an editor, of none, I'm not less in publishing, both negotiating and signing contracts, is it's very dangerous to, to sign a contract because you know the person you're dealing with is decent. You know, and while they wouldn't do that thing that that, that contract potentially allows for. Right. And... I, I mean, speaking as an editor, I mean, I, I'll send out contracts and I, I beseech people. I say sort of, please make sure you've read it carefully. Think about it. Ask any questions you have so that you understand completely what it is that you're signing. And the number of times you find like a year later, somebody writes and says, oh, I'm doing this. And you're going, but your contract says you can't do that. And they're like, oh, what? Really? And you're going, did you read the contract back at day one? Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm always surprised when people don't treat contracts as important. I do always read my contracts. Mm. Um, I uh, what I should do, I think personally, is probably have a checklist mm -hmm. because I know that like if something happens, like Helix happened a few years ago. Do you guys remember mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. um, where you know, just as a summary, there was that huge explosive incident and everyone was like, I, we can no longer be associated with this magazine. But it turned out that there was nothing in your contract that said you could ever take your story off their website. Mm -hmm. right. Like he had it for, you know, a hundred years if he wanted it. Uh, and so after that, I made sure that I always had a uh, stipulation in place about when I could take something down. Um, and I actually just added that to a contract um, a couple of weeks ago. But I am not entirely positive that I always remember to check for it now. <laughs> um, so 
So I should have a checklist. And that's one of the things mm -hmm. CIFO wants to develop, actually, is some resources like that. So you can just have it by your computer and be like, do I have this? Yes, check. Um, well, I think one of the dangerous but, things which can happen uh, is that you trust your agent to check everything uh, when you have one. And no matter how good your agent is, they will make mistakes too sometimes. And But you're less diligent. I mean, I'm concerned that writers or anybody who has an agent can be less diligent about looking at their contracts because they have an agent. And, you know, I know agents expect you to check your, well, a good agent will expect you to contract, expect, you know, check your contract closely because mm -hmm. you're the person who's bound by it, not the agent. I, I also think that some people are, like, scared of their agents. Um, <laughs> so, um, there's this, uh, you know, the agent is technically your employee, right? I mean, oh, well, business partner, at least. Business partner, but, but it's not, like... Um, I think that writers get it into their head that the power dynamic is that the agent owns you. And if you upset your agent, then you will never have a career, right? Yeah. Or whatever it is. And um, so I'll hear people say something like, well, my agent wouldn't let me do that project. And I'm like, okay. And you, you agreed with them, right? Like you didn't just say, therefore, I will never do that project. Or, um, and I think that sometimes that mindset will transfer over to the contract stuff where they don't feel like they can question or even double check. Though you always have to be careful about listening to that one as well because mm -hmm. the whole agent or client dynamic is a really fascinating and at times entertaining one to me because the obviously the agent allows you to say things or having an agent allows you to say things that make life socially easier. You know, my agent wouldn't allow me to do that, you say, when what you're really saying is, I spoke to my agent, we agreed we didn't want to do it, but I don't want to appear like a bad person in front of you, yeah. so I'm going to say my agent didn't allow me to do it, and we'll all agree that that's okay. Oh, yeah, no, 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 I don't mean like they're saying it to the person yeah. who manages yeah. the project. No, yeah. I mean like I'm talking to a friend of mine, and they're like, I really wanted to do this, but my agent, you know, yeah. that I can't. <laughs> Like, but they're right. also complicated, and, and, and Jonathan, you've run into situations like this. We've talked about it where, where some an agent works a contract with some short fiction publisher, which effectively preempts that short fiction from being included in a year's best anthology. Yes, it's quite common. Yeah, and that's is that really doing a favor to the author at that point? Uh, you've got to realize that that contract's not about doing a favor to the author. It's about uh, realizing income for the project. And mm -hmm. assuming that the author is paid fairly for that, I don't have a problem with it. Do you, Rachel? Um, I try to make sure I don't have that, <laughs> that I always do with the mm -hmm. option of being reprinted. Yeah. Um, I mean, as long as the author is, is aware that that's what's going on. Yeah. I mean, if someone pays you, I'm not, I'm not thinking of anyone in particular. Let's say somebody pays you 20 cents a word for a short story and they want 12 months exclusivity. Mm -hmm. As long as you know that that's what you, you know, you've paid for, you know, I can't see that, that, that that's a major issue. I mean, one of the more controversial things that's been rumored every now and again is that someone would do a best of the year and pay enough to get exclusivity, which would be an interesting thing. Huh. I've never you heard know. of that. Oh, yeah. It gets talked about every really? now and again. In, in the back rooms, you know, sort of, if you came along and <laughs> instead of paying one or two cents a word, you, spent, you paid 10 or 15 cents a word, but you can't sell it to any other, you know, you basically pass that exclusivity on for another 12 months to that anthology, ah. locking it out of any other best of, best of the year. Is that a wrong thing? Now, I know that my colleague, Ellen Datlow, would, would tell you strongly that that's a terrible wrong thing, and I can see her argument. 
But uh-huh. I can also see the argument for it. So, anyway. Well, the question this is, is... This uh, is us really wandering off down a side path when we've really hit the end of our hour, Gary. Oh, no, but... <laughs> we have! Before they got started. All good conversations are like that. Mm. But, given that, I guess what I'd really like to say, Rachel, is thank you very much for give, giving us the time today to come and talk to us. We really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm excited to get the chance to talk to you guys. I missed you at Worldcon. Uh, well, I, well, sadly, I wasn't there, but Gary was. Yeah. And um, the, you know, good luck with the, with the collection. It's out from Subterranean Press at the end of the, the month. The world became quiet. Myths yep. of the past, present, and future. Available directly from the publisher and from all reputable, I guess, websites and bookstores and all that kind of thing. And until then, thank you very much, Rachel. Thank you. And Jonathan, Jonathan, you and I will talk again next week. We shall indeed. Until then. <laughs>